Hi and welcome to another Fuds on Film podcast. I am Craig and with me tonight, Drew Tavendale. Greetings. Uh, we'll be returning to the Belgian well of full contact face displacement. Uh, we're here to preach to you once again the gospel of Van Damme, because apparently he's our mascot or something. Um, celebrating the only decade coke-fueled enough to afford me the opportunity to complete the following sentence, we have a trio of 90s curios for you this episode, including two efforts from Hong Kong maestro Choi Hawk, an appearance by non-hexadecimal basketball character Dennis Rodman, and a fight to the death with a penguin called Pete. Don't <laughs> delay, get your incredibly violent pick-and-mix today. I thought the penguin's called Icy. Is it? Yes. Oh, I googled him earlier, and apparently he's called Pete now. I'm sure in the film he's called Icy. He, do you know that film was produced by the manager of the Pittsburgh Penguins? Uh, yeah, and the story coming from the wife of the owner. That's um, definitely not a let's do this nice thing for the wife of the rich person thing. But, That's um, it. <laughs> but Drew, wait a minute. What is that film we're talking about? Um, that film um, starring the person who's apparently become our spirit animal. Yes. Um, well, it's Die Hard in a nice hockey stadium. Bingo. Are we done? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> no, sudden, but, but, but sudden 1995's Sudden Death are you talking yeah. about, Drew? Yeah. But seriously, Craig, Die Hard in a nice hockey stadium. Yeah. Is that reductive? No. Nope. Well, certainly is. Is it inaccurate? Certainly not. <laughs> Police Academy 3 and Operation Dumble Drop scribe Gene Quintano's script gives a story credit to the wife of the then owner of the Pittsburgh Penguins, but it really ought to be giving it to Roderick Thorpe. A terrorist, who turns out to be actually a thief, has taken over a building and rigged it with explosives. He is well prepared, well armed and ruthless, and knows how to deal with the feds when they turn up. Set against him is one single man, a member of the emergency services, who is running around the building trying to gather information and gradually reduce the number of personnel commanded by the leader. There is a geeky guy wearing glasses watching everything on monitors. A member of the hero's family becomes endangered, and our hero even abseils from the roof of a tall building. Now, I just described both Sudden Death and Die Hard, and I didn't have to fudge a single thing to fit. But for all that Peter Hyams' 1995 film is a diehard knockoff, and it really is, for crying out loud, our French-Canadian hero's surname is McCord. <laughs> Jeebus. <laughs> French-Canadian? That's not an attempt to explain away any accents or anything, is it, Drew? No. Put such thoughts from your mind, Craig, you cynic, you. <laughs> so tell me about this, McLe- yes. uh, sorry, McCord. Yes. <laughs> no, say, despite all these similarities to Die Hard, uh, it's also probably the best Die Hard knockoff I've seen. Yep. And I really quite enjoyed my time with it. And I honestly, I didn't write anything more about a plot recap because it's Die Hard in a hockey stadium. <laughs> there is nothing, you know exactly how that's going to go. Uh, um, the sudden death, though, does manage to add a few moments of originality uh, through means of some inventive deaths. Among them, death by dishwasher and... <laughs> Death by Hambone. <laughs> as well as having our hero take part in the seventh game of the Stanley Cup, the spectators of which are the unwitting hostages here. It's also got one of the more memorable helicopter crashes you're likely to see. And, well, Craig, how often do you see a penguin get beaten up? Oh, about once a decade at best. Yeah. He's no Bruce Willis, but JCBD is in good form here. Powers Booth is a fun villain, and even the young child isn't irritating. It's well produced, entertaining, and even managed to surprise me with a character revelation. 
Uh, and I recommend you check it out now before Netflix planned comedy remake ruins it for you. What? Yes, I had discovered this this evening. Um, Netflix, well, it's presumably off the cards now because it was meant to film June this year, but right. Netflix are planning a comedy remake of it called Welcome to Sudden Death. Whoa! Yeah. How do you do a comedy remake of a terrorist sort of siege action movie? With all the murder that this has, um, I'm hoping you don't, but... <laughs> oh, wow, right, okay, sorry, that's caught me off guard slightly. Um, right, I'm really glad you enjoyed this then, because you hadn't seen this up until now, had you? I had not, no. No, and I last watched it quite a while ago, but I, I say quite a while ago, it's probably three, four years ago now, I had this sudden... A recollection of having really enjoyed it and I think I'd been speaking to someone about Die Hard knockoffs and you know Die Hard on an X or <laughs> in, an, in a Y um, and I had suggested uh, Sudden Death to them and having done that I thought oh wait a minute have I made a terrible mistake there <laughs> because it's been sort of you know a, an intervening 20 years and yeah, yeah, I, yeah it's, it, I mean it is what it is and nobody in this movie is under any illusions that are creating great art but I was I was actually really pleased to revisit it um, it was a couple of months ago now, so I've not watched it in the last week or anything. But I revisited it a couple of months ago, just on the spur because I had a notion that it might crop up in conversation at least anyway. And it is like uh, really enjoyable, and it's fairly well produced. And it's uh, in terms of Van Damme performances, it's I mean uh, you know for given values of performance when it comes to Jean Claude Van Damme, it's definitely up there. He's he's really um, he's really he's, engaging. He's and, charismatic, absolutely. Yeah, he's very yeah, likable in the role. He really is, and he's I actually feels quite easy. Yeah, absolutely easy, and he's actually quite convincing as a caring father type. And he's not. Um, there would be the fear that um, you know you would lose some of the urgency of that you would have in Die Hard from having such a vulnerable lead. Um, and that it would be quite unbelievable that, you know, high-kicking Jean-Claude Van Damme would, you know, somehow feel utterly, you know, invincible and undermine the whole sort of sense of urgency and danger in this movie. But that that somehow doesn't happen, despite the fact he's clearly quite competent at kicking people in the head. Yes. Um, there is still a real sense of jeopardy about it, which is the crucial thing for a movie like this. And I don't have a great deal to add to what you said, because I'm guessing a lot of people will probably have seen this because it was one of his more high-profile releases. I mean, the guy's career has only contained so many, um, you know, theatrically released projects. There was a huge, there was a huge swathe at the start and now towards the end of his career that have been sort of very much straight to straight to video. Mm -hmm. But there was a period there in the mid to late nineties where he had a run of five or six films that sort of had wide theatrical release. And this is definitely up there. Um, some of the effects work now, especially in the final sequence, is showing itself to be a little bit ropey, especially with sort of high-def transfers now being pretty unforgiving in terms of, um, you know, anything other than a pristine matte or optical effect these days. But um, if you can... If you can I was going to say, if you can excuse the rough edges, it's more part of its charm in some respects. Um, it is still just a pretty good romp. And yeah, you know the story already, um, but you've probably guessed that before you sit down to watch it. And it's kind of kind of comfort food and one of his best movies, really. Yeah, I would say, I mean, it's... I mean, the second half of the film becomes a little more generic. Yeah. Uh, the first half I particularly enjoyed, though, because Powers Booth's character is so kind of... yeah. Um, he's just got this great swagger and the, the actual, the way the card is written with 
how all his preparation and things. I really appreciate that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So that's really quite satisfying. Yeah, that, like everything's so well thought out. Um, and I say the second half, bit more generic, but it still has quite a bit of Jean Claude Van Damme kicking people. So yeah. that's good. I think I think Powers Booth does. Uh, it's not that he's not guilty of chewing the scenery to some extent, but I think the risk with this would have been to have had a villain that was quite as reserved as Rickman's performance in Die Hard. I think you kind of had to lean into the fact of knowing that this was a knockoff. Little lead into a, a, a later uh, a later conversation there. Um, I think you had to lean into the fact, and the film is self aware enough to know that actually, if we're going to have this villain, let's let's have Powers Booth camp it up just enough, and he does sort of still come in just under the radar as believable, um, but sort of campy enough to make it work in the context of the movie as a whole. If that makes sense, yeah, I mean, he's clearly no Alan Rickman, and no. and his hands Gruber because he's so composed at the start like when he yeah. loses his um, rag at the end that it's more meaningful yeah um but if you don't get a good enough actor you try to do that reserve thing it's, it's going to end up yeah. completely milk toast and, con- whereas- and conversely rickman in this movie would have been a disaster because he ov- he would have been he would have almost been too good you would have yeah. sensed that he was in a different <laughs> was, movie yeah it was powers booth he's like you can see there's like that there's like a wee glint in his eye it's like he's having fun, but it works. The character's written to the, the character's kind of having fun with this, even though it's not yeah. important to him. Um, and I think he plays it just the right side of of that. Like, he knows what sort of film he's in, but you know, still professional. Yeah, um, giving it just the right kind of tone that works with the film without it being, as you say, chewing the scenery and over the top, mm. or kind of taking it too seriously and just like not it being in any way interesting. Yeah. This is that kind of mid-90s film that could have aged incredibly badly by now, but actually if you put it up against something like... um, Did we not discuss the likes of Face Off recently? Did we not talk about that in a recent podcast and how we thought it was the absolute bee's knees at the time? And I remember you and I coming out of the cinema really excited about the fact that John Woo had translated so well to Hollywood finally. And actually when you watch that now, that is a bad movie. (laughs) I have the feeling we've said almost exactly this same thing on the podcast multiple times now. It also comes up in our just regular off-air conversations. This this feels like the sort of product of its time that could have aged incredibly badly. So it was actually really pleasantly surprised to see that it's still just incredibly competent and still just sort of engaging and enjoyable enough to be worthwhile to watch. Yeah, it's just a thoroughly solid, thoroughly enjoyable action film. Yeah, um, well produced um, and actually well performed by everybody, including old, uh, including our mascot. Yeah, and it's it's quite nice to see too that there aren't any characters here doing things that don't make any sense. Yeah, but are perhaps the, the one bit where his son suddenly becomes a wee get um, <laughs> after having defended his father for being not a fireman anymore, but. Um, yeah, other than that, like nobody's doing anything completely stupid or that makes no sense at all. It's yeah. all reasonable. Yeah, because the I, plot of this is inherently ridiculous, but it somehow comes across as entirely sort of <laughs> acceptable. Um, but yes, no, I, I would suggest that if you if you haven't seen this movie for some reason, give it a give it a watch. Give yeah. it a watch. I just wish I could find the episode of. Um, I don't think it'll be available anymore whatsoever anywhere. But there is an episode of Greg Proop's podcast, uh, the smartest man in the world, um, from about five or six years ago that sort of first spurred my recollections about this movie, where he opens with a bit of a. Um, a bit of a talk about how much he enjoys sudden death. 
and I have I'm not going to attempt to recreate it here, but he has a he has a bit that he does around <laughs> around sudden death, <laughs> which still makes me laugh now to think about it. Um, and I wish I'd kept that episode, but there you go. That's quite by the by. <laughs> um, if we want to talk about believable plot, so Drew, I think we're about to reach the absolute Mount Kilimanjaro of grounded, um, sort of very believable action plots when I uh, brief everybody on Double Team. <laughs> yes. Um, though this um, is my fault. Right. Because... Explain yourself. Well, because, you know, we've been doing a few JCVD films. Mm. Not the film's not my fault, us covering it. I'm not taking responsibility for that. But, no. Uh, yes, we've been doing a couple of JCD films of late, and uh, I wanted to mention shoehorn this in somewhere because mm-hmm. the fact that it was a Jean-Claude Van Damme film co-starring Dennis Rodman really amused me. Yeah. Um, it didn't fit into the last one because Scott watched it and I hadn't got around to it yet. Mm. Um and so maybe a show of solidarity more than anything else. And the fact that Scott told us um, about the setup for the finale. Yeah. Uh, well, clearly we're doing that. It's awesome. But also, it's also my fault for bringing it up in the first place when we probably never would have talked about it. So, sorry. It's important for me to say at this point, Drew, that I forgive you. So, <laughs> without further ado... Hello, peeps. Stavros here. I've got beef. (laughs) (laughs) What? It's not just me that had that um, voice to head all through the film. (laughs) I've got beef with the Belgian, innit? The The following may or may not be a recounting of the plot of 1997's seminal buddy caper double team because I started watching it in bed the other night and I can't be entirely sure I didn't immediately fall asleep and dream this shit. Um... I think what happens is this. Uh, we cold open with Jack Quinn, uh, Jean-Claude Van Damme, some sort of elite CIA operative, rescuing nuclear materials from some asshole in some corner of Eastern Europe. I get the impression that Quinn's colleagues don't like him very much because as he launches his impromptu mission, they start running up and down corridors, excitedly proclaiming that if he pulls this off, he retires. But that's by the by, because right now, we just need to understand that Jack Quinn is nobody's fool, and if you were to hand him some sort of procedural tome a rule book if you will he would probably look at it in disgust before killing you with the extra foot he has hidden on the sole of his kicking foot the scene we set now um Sorry, the scene set. We now head off to a fairground where Quinn is attempting to ambush Stavros. <laughs> Mickey Rock. <laughs> uh, Stavros. How much better would have been Mickey Rock and had in fact been Harry Enfield? The first time someone said Stavros in this, I, 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 honestly, I did like a, the whatever. The, <laughs> can you do a double take to audio? Because I think I was kind of, I wasn't even looking at the screen at the time, and I just sort of went, did he say Stavros? Is the bad guy in this called Stavros? Um, <laughs> anyway, uh, it's Quinn's attempting to ambush Stavros. Uh, Mickey Rourke, of course, a very naughty terrorist. There's a tiger in a cage, and when it all goes to Pete Tong and the whole fairground blows up except for the tiger, we are disappointed that nobody has to fight the tiger, but don't worry about the tiger. Hold that tiger thought. 
Stavros gets away, and Quinn, who gets all exploded and stuff, but is okay because he's significantly more excellent than you, wakes up in the colony, an island prison for former operatives whose expertise in situational analysis is sold to international clients. I think I got that right. I don't know. Apparently the residents of the colony are, quote, too valuable to kill and too dangerous to set free, but they're all over 60, so that sounds like nonsense. Nobody can escape the colony, but that's okay, because remember, Jack Quinn is not nobody. But that joke doesn't work, because I implied that if you were nobody, you would be the one who could escape. Anyway, Jack Quinn does escape because he's significantly more excellent than you. And, crucially, he isn't afraid of underwater lasers that cause people to explode for some reason. Hold that tiger thought now. Now, Quinn is out to settle the score with Stavros, but wait, his wife, who thinks he's dead, is a sculptor, and there's a gallery who just purchased her pieces and is offering to house her and start a new life, and the owner of the gallery is... Stavros. I'm trying to help you here by not giving you too much time to think about it, so don't think about it. Did I mention Jack's wife is pregnant? Don't worry about it. Anyway, there's a reason why Jack needs the help of international arms dealer Yaz, Dennis Rodman, who has not brought the plastic population, but I'm not going to worry about it, and neither should you. Yaz is a bit weird and edgy, which you can tell by his orange string vest and the fact he's Dennis Rodman. And, for some reason, he decides at some point, despite having no reason whatsoever to help Jack Quinn save his wife and new baby, because the baby has been born now from Stavros there's a really angry oriental gent in a hotel who is so assured of his martial arts skills that he chooses to flick a chair in the air and then kick it at Jack Quinn as an opening move and I think I remember Mickey Rourke crying because he stepped on a landmine and can't run away from a tiger remember the tiger and it was all happening inside the Colosseum in Rome naturally but ultimately I have no idea what the hell I just watched so Double Team might stand as an example of the pitfalls of trying to transplant Hong Kong talent wholesale into the American studio system, but it is just too damn weird to be much of an example of anything except maybe cocaine. Um, interestingly, the screenplay reads like a bad dub of an early John Woo movie, but it isn't. It's actually something that's being touted as a functional piece of literature upon which of millions of dollars ought to be brought to bear in service of putting it on screen. This is patently mental, as can be evidenced by lines like Stavros is a snake. If you look him in the eyes, he'll get you in the back. Which is, does nothing so much as suggest that screenwriter Don Jacoby thinks a snake's eyes are located in its ass. So... Enough stuff blows up in inventive ways that the movie at least gives the impression of some effort being expended, but the same cannot be said of the performances of its leads, in particular Dennis Rodman, whose stunt casting defies any kind of logic whatsoever. It wouldn't necessarily be fair to criticise Rodman's acting per se, because it's not technically acting, and it's not just bad line reading either. What Rodman does is somehow create a third method of expression that exists beyond performance, and I'm not sure he ought not to be celebrated for it. It's just that it doesn't belong in a film so much as it does a peyote fueled vision quest. Ultimately, though the... <laughs> <laughs> oh no, I'll, I have to remember the pronunciation Ultimately though, the most wasted talent is Hawk Who seems here to be trapped inside a cross Between a mid-90s MTV video and a fever dream Thrusting <laughs> upon us bonkers moments That sometimes border on the Takashi Miki end of the spectrum Fortunately, this is not a movie that sets out to take itself seriously And it is at least entertaining in 
some sense of the word. I can't imagine I'll ever watch Double Team again, but I'm also not sad about having watched it because this is very much something that exists. <laughs> yes, this is something that I have seen. <laughs> it is definitely a thing that I have now watched. <laughs> Are you glad that you watched it now, Drew? Are you glad that you did this to us? Honestly? Yes. <laughs> I can't say I didn't enjoy my time yeah, with this, Drew, but this is, I can't qualify that. This is generally one of the worst films I've ever seen, but <laughs> in the best way. <laughs> one of those films that makes so little sense, and let's get this straight, this film makes not a lick of sense. Nope. Um, in a way, but in a way that I couldn't stop questioning it, like, what, what is happening? Why is he doing this? Why is Dennis Rodman now sitting inside a, a 1960s Fiat Cinquecento with a foot of his body sticking out the top of the sunroof? <laughs> I, Drew, spot on. I sat there throughout this whole thing going to myself, why am I having to think so hard about a Jean-Claude Van Damme movie? Well, they clearly didn't think about it. <laughs> so why am I doing their thinking for them? Um, what is plot? <laughs> and things just happen and they make no sense. And, but I, I'm so glad I watched it because it's so entertainingly weird and stupid and nonsensical. Um and you picked up on some of the stuff that I was going to say too, Craig. Against. I apologise for interrupting your intro. No, but no. When you said about the Stavros thing, I was like, yeah, since I heard Stavros, I could stop thinking about Harry Enfield. <laughs> um, and yeah, the thing about, yeah, he's like a snake. If you look in the eye of Stavio Bax, you're just playing this fundamental misunderstanding of how snakes work. <laughs> <laughs> what was the other bit as well? There was another line. Oh, two darts will kill a man. Three will kill a rhino. And we want Stavros alive. And I thought yes. to myself, so one dart then, yeah? yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure you needed a bit about the rhino. <laughs> <laughs> and then I think one of my favourite lines in history, because there were a couple of points where I laughed out loud and it was obvious that the film wanted me to laugh. It wasn't just because it was bad. And I think one of my favourite <laughs> one of my favourite lines, and it's a Rodman line, is my lucky coin. My lucky detonator and my lucky plastic explosives. <laughs> like, because of course, this is a conversation you would be having with Jean Claude Van Damme and some internet-enabled monks in a in a sewer beneath the Colosseum. Thank you, Dennis Rodman. Yeah, uh, uh, it's. I said that um, the screenwriter displayed a fundamental misunderstanding of how snakes worked. <laughs> It also displays a fundamental misunderstanding of how plot works. Um, uh, it's just... I mean, there's nothing Nothing about this film is good. The, the actual camera work is terrible because it's full of Dutch angles with no understanding of what Dutch angles are for. Yeah. Uh, things just happen and they don't make any sense. Like Mickey Rook's character's child is murdered and he seems pissed off about that but that's because he's in a firefight that you started because you brought several goons with automatic weapons mm. to a um, amusement park for some reason uh, and then even from the start the film had me uh, irritated Again, it went on to amuse me greatly but mm. from the get go when it said um, he, he's stealing uh, somebody's trying to steal um, unenriched plutonium from outside of Croatia. So, 
Bosnia then, or <laughs> Italy, or um, something, because Croatia's an entire country, you can't be outside of it and still call it Croatia, that's not how countries work, you don't understand that either, do you? So, no understanding of plot, no understanding of geography. Yeah, because <laughs> if it carries on later too, quickly says to him, um, I thought I killed you in, or you thought you died in Lebanon. In Lebanon. Beirut, actually, which is the capital of Lebanon. <laughs> I was going to say... <laughs> <laughs> don't, don't I'm looking you in the eyes, don't get me in the back. Uh, it's like the entire middle third of the film has yeah. nothing to do with anything at all. It's like, <laughs> he, uh, quite apart from the fact that he wasn't an agent, he was asked to come back to do this, so didn't owe yeah. anybody anything. Yeah. Um, and not that this film is unique in that regard, of that particular stupidity to it. We <laughs> have this place called The Colony, who I don't understand how they're funded or why they exist or what happens there. No. Um, I think but, they exist purely to pad this out to 90 minutes, Drew. Exactly, because <laughs> it doesn't have anything to do with the rest of the film at all. Well, un- unbelievably though, Drew, initially this was a screen... I think, if I remember um, half-assed internet research, um, as as some podcasts refer to it, or, or IMDB <laughs> trivia, as everyone else calls it, this started out as a screenplay called The Colony. And it was about his escape from the colony. Yeah. So everything a... else appears to have been bolted on around it, whereas it almost feels like everything else was there first and this got shoehorned in. Yeah, because the the title of it in English, Double Team, is a reference to the basketball play, mm. right? Um, but in certainly in Spanish-speaking countries, this film's called The Colony. Yeah. Like, but the, the colony has nothing to do with this film at all. No. So, you've, so you've sense. named the film after something completely incidental that happens for 10 minutes uh, somewhere in the middle. Yeah, so you can have a 30-minute montage of Jean-Claude Van Damme showing how awesome Jack Quinn is and how yeah. he's considerably better than you. Yeah. And um, that he's really inventive and fit. And it's like, but it doesn't have anything to do so, with the plot at all. Also, Craig, it's, it's there purely so that you don't question him kicking a tiger in the last ten minutes, <laughs> because by that point you're like, yes, Jack Quinn would kick a tiger. Yeah, I, it's, um, yeah, but as well as him being in this apparently top secret anti-terrorist thing, uh-huh. where where they kill the anti-terrorist people if they try to escape, mm, uh, as well as being there and. Um, it being secret and being told everybody it dies, Mickey Rourke's character probably knows he's there and not dead because he leaves mm-hmm. messages for him that only they would find. But yep. It makes no sense. No. Um, and then when he gets out of that and hooks up with Dennis Rodman again, um, yeah, then the fun's just beginning. <laughs> See, the mistake you've made there, Drew, is that while you were watching this film, you allowed yourself to activate more than three synapses. Yeah, but you know that I'm actually physically incapable of not doing that, Craig. So well, I'm always at a disadvantage with such things. But that's um, it. I was still so entertained. But like, there's a scene where, um, again, because everything just needs to happen. If that's because the plot needs it to happen, not because it makes any sense at all. Yeah. Like, towards the end, I was like, Mickey Rourke says, "Give me sixty seconds, then kill both the women." Why? <laughs> Why? Well, because they needed to have an action scene where Sean Connery and Dam came to try to save the women. But yeah. not have Mickey Rook there because he need him for the final. It's, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, I was like, I seen that he's going to a hotel and he decides, well, what I'll do is I'll get every agency in the world to look for um, Stavros. Yeah. Um, so there's like, there's Mossad and there's the FBI and the CIA and there's 
the Italian police and there's a bunch of other things all outside this hotel in um, Italy. And all of a sudden, there's this guy dressed as a police officer on horseback who's yeah. a murderer and just starts murdering people for I didn't reasons. understand who that guy was and what he was doing. Was he just there to murder people completely coincidentally? Well, um, or was he, he part of, I'm right assuming he's part of Stavros's crew, but to what this, end? This, he starts doing that right after somebody, I think Stavros, talks about someone. Yeah. But it doesn't actually match up with what went before. And since the rest of the film doesn't have a lot of matching up of things happening and what people actually say, mm. I think it's entirely random, but he just starts murdering people because. Yeah. Uh, like innocent um, bystanders. Yeah. Most bizarre. Then we get to stop for a moment too while Jean-Claude Van Damme wears um, a wig, a perm wig, and Dennis Rodman's suddenly a 1930s gangster. Mm. Uh, and then, yeah, hotel fight where the man who kicks the chair at uh, Quinn suddenly takes off his shoe. Somehow inside his shoe, he's managed to hide an entire flick knife, which he uses <laughs> with his toes. You've never bought a shoe half a size too big then. <laughs> <laughs> and then they get really trapped, but suddenly the um, Dennis Rodman, this arms dealer from Antwerp, in Rome, has a whole cadre of um, monks who help him out because they have Google. Craig, I know. Head hurty. I think while we're while we've been talking about this, I've figured it out. <clears throat> about three minutes ago, the penny dropped while you were talking. This is the antimatter <laughs> equivalent of a good movie, in that. <laughs> It behaves the same, but it is inherently the opposite of. <laughs> and I think that explains why we have both come away thinking, this is baffling, this is terrible. But for some reason, there's a little nagging thing at the back of my brain that says, I kind of enjoyed this as if it was a good movie. Yeah. Um, I honestly don't think I've enjoyed a film so much in this way, this mm. particular mm. way since um, yeah. Operation Kid Brother. It's Yes, yeah, it's like that in the sense that it very much challenges classical notions of what cinema, <laughs> what cinema is and ought to do. Yes, it's yeah. um, um, it, it's terrible. It's generally terrible, but I actually also absolutely recommend it because it's it's so terrible in such particular inventive ways. Yes, that I got a lot of it. Uh, well, I think we should also quite apart from its um, tiger-fighting minefield coliseum at the end. Mm -hmm. uh, we have to, to mention the product placement, Craig. I have never seen such product placement in my life. I don't know that I haven't seen worse product placement, but it is, it's up there. It's um, certainly up there. Because I've been to the coliseum, and I don't remember, I don't remember seeing columns of Coke vending machines. No, but... Um, yeah, I mean, there, there are some product places earlier. There's Omega watches, mm -hmm. and they're quite prominent. Like, that is actually yeah, pretty blatant when he's on the when he's in the colony. That's quite egregious, but okay. But then, uh, then in the end, we get the Colosseum's exploding quick. Get behind this multiple row of Coca-Cola vending machines, which are bombproof and also on screen for about an hour and a half each. <laughs> Dennis Rodman's going to sit and hold this Coke vending machine against an explosion that for some reason, rather than being relatively instantaneous, is going to last for 60 seconds. 
Uh, yeah, it's pretty bad. And But the thing is, I mean, to what end did these people want to sponsor this movie? Why did, why, why did Omega want to place their product in this movie? Because it's something... They're more interested in Bond movies. Yeah. And a Bond did they movie think this was not. a Bond movie? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, at the time, uh, Dennis Rodman was... Yeah. Really big stars. Maybe around about the time he was married to Carmen Electra, yes, a yeah. model, and um, when when he's was playing for the Bulls and they were winning their second three peat and yeah. their second hat trick of titles. Um, so I mean, I understand the stunt casting there, but yeah. still, it's not. I don't think it could ever have been that big a film. No, no. It's a, and it's ultimately, it's a Jean-Claude Van Damme movie. <laughs> yeah, it, it's baffling. But um, that's. I hope they feel they got their money's worth. Um. Yeah, it's. Uh, oh, we even get a bonus Dennis Rodman song at the end. <laughs> yes, we Singing do. With Crystal Waters. <laughs> I'd forgot about that, and I was really creeped out by his delivery <laughs> of his vocals. <laughs> There's something really unsettling about that. I really wish I hadn't been watching this movie in bed. That was just weirded me <laughs> right out, right out. But um, yeah, interesting. Um. So uh, let us let's go on then because then I, I'm interested to see whether I have any penance to pay because I think it was myself who suggested our next movie which is Knockoff. Yes, so we recently covered a film in which old JC punched a cobra, and in this episode he's already beaten up a penguin and kicked the tiger. Here he's destroying some pumas. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't even think about that while we were watching it. I was well, looking for one well other way done, through. Sir. It's the best one I could cover. Uh, well done, sir. Sadly, though, they're the German running shoe type. <laughs> and our JCVD fighting animals theme is shown at last to be nothing more than a paper-thin veneer over our desire just to continue talking about JCVD. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> uh. The truth. <laughs> <laughs> so much better a link than this film deserves, or any of this deserves, to be honest. Yes. Uh, no. <laughs> Sorry, I don't know why that's tickled me. <laughs> oh dear. Uh, Sorry, Drew. Yeah. The truth will out, uh, <laughs> but our desire to shoehorn more JCV into our feed will out, error. <laughs> Uh, here, Monsieur Van Varenberg teams up once more with Choi Hawk, uh, but Dennis Rodman is replaced in the Don't Give Up the Day Job co star role by Rob Schneider, whose day job this unfortunately is. <laughs> oh dear. Uh, the script is from diehard co writer Stephen E. D'Souza. Strange how these things to cr- seems these things seem to cross pollinate, isn't it? Oh yeah, um, and involves Rob Schneider's Tommy Hendricks and his partner JCVD's Marcus Ray, and their business of manufacturing jeans for a US fashion brand, and also making and selling counterfeit goods, but not the counterfeit jeans that are an important plot point. That was somebody else, apparently. <laughs> and Tommy is also a CIA operative who has been working undercover in Hong Kong for four years on something. 
but not the thing that the film's about, which is miniaturized <laughs> Russian explosives disguised as button batteries and studs, as he's totally oblivious to that until Marcus literally steps on. This is a dumb film. The whole thing is about a sub-sub-James Bond plot by some Russians, possibly the Russian mafia, to plant the devices in lots of everyday objects, such as those aforementioned counterfeit genes as well as electronics and toys, and then extort $100 million a month from the US government to not blow them all up. There's also a Hong Kong detective, I think, who seems to be doing his own investigation into the explosives, and who, unlike Tommy, does know about them, as he has a handy, <laughs> miniaturised exploding battery location device. <laughs> <laughs> Though the hows and the whys of this are not considered important for we poor viewers, who also have to put up with horrible camera work and editing, bizarre slow-mo and blurring while having no idea what's going on, or having any reason to care. <laughs> To add to the mystery, the film is also set in a few days before Hong Kong's return to Chinese rule, with the finale taking place during the ceremonies themselves, though for no good reason, and instead raising the question of why the celebrations are still going ahead the day after a Hong Kong landmark was blown sky high, along with hundreds of people, by terrorists. Did I mention that this is a dumb film? <laughs> and I nearly forgot. One of the opening scenes involves an underground, unlicensed charity rickshaw race. Yeah. In which people cheat and others get maimed and injured. You know, for charity. <laughs> charity being support the maimed rickshaw runners. <laughs> um, additionally, the poster is one of the ugliest and dullest I think I've ever seen. Especially for a film of this scale. <laughs> Tri-star pictures are hardly being... I love that you're drilling in at the poster now. <laughs> uh, it's, it's so bad though, Craig. Oh, um, it really is. TriStar Pictures are partly being unable to allocate any of the film's $35 million budget to more than five minutes of an artist's time. Though I suppose the poster does at least set one's expectations appropriately. The, the poster was clearly done by the intern, wasn't it? <laughs> it's like, oh cool, your second day in Photoshop and you made this. <laughs> I certainly had reservations about watching this when Craig suggested it due to the presence of Rob Schneider, but yeah. I can barely believe I'm saying this. Yeah. Knockoff managed to underuse him. Yeah. For at least half of the film, and probably more, Schneider doesn't give what could be called a Rob Schneider performance. He's just there, largely inoffensively. However, at a few points, the script does call for him to be more annoying and, well, Schneidery, and he's not there for it. Though it's not his fault. This film has caused me to defend Rob Schneider. <laughs> what the hell is happening? <laughs> Knockoff is a complete dud. Confusing, stupid, messy, and unlike Double Team, which is atrociously bad but at least kept me constantly asking who, what, and why, it's just too damn boring to care about. Needs real pumas out of ten. <laughs> I didn't I didn't hate this movie quite as much as you but it's certainly it's interesting. I think my my opening gambit on this was that unbelievably I did not find Rob Schneider to be unsufferable. So that makes that He's, makes two of us drew. He was fine for the most part. He was Yeah. You know. I think there's an argument to be made that 
<laughs> if this had been a slightly better film, that in terms of like production value, this is the opposite of Double Team, and that it's far better to send Hollywood talent to Hong Kong to make a Hong Kong movie that just happens to have Hollywood talent in it. I think it hangs together somewhat more coherently as a movie than Double Team, if not if not in terms of uh, the amount of time that's been lavished on coming up with a plot. Um, and the, the thing that I enjoyed most about it, so in the last Compare and Contrast episodes that you guys recorded, Scott spoke about Van Damme loosening up a bit and given the appearance of enjoying himself more and that definitely applies to him here he's clearly having a whale of a time um, and he's actually not that bad a comic per- performer and his performance here is very much more sort of in the vein of in a comic vein than something more traditional that you would expect from a Van Damme movie I think I'd probably make a lot of the same comments about this film as Scott did about Double Impact so I'm going to avoid parroting that um, I thought there were actually elements to enjoy about this Um I would add that in this instance, Hawk actually seems a lot more evident as a presence behind the camera. Um, There's a good deal more martial arts for a start, although bizarrely I understand that a lot of the final fight scenes between Van Damme and the two main bad guys on the boat got chopped in the edit. Um, I think you see most of the martial arts thanks to editing and really strange... um Framing. I really want to know what's going on there because um, it was. I think uh, was it Samuel Hung was the fight choreographer for this film. Samuel Hung was the fight choreographer in Double Team. I'm not sure about this one. Yeah, I'm pretty sure he was on this as well. You know, and for some reason, I would love to know why they excised the the fight stuff. Is it, it just didn't work? I can't believe that for a minute because the stuff that's been left in isn't that great in that that sort of final scene. Um, and yes, I have made a note. <laughs> <laughs> that most notably the camera is almost always doing something interesting in this movie um, every second shot in this film is from an, a, a unique perspective and boy does it not work um, <laughs> it certainly gave me an interesting game to play and I called that game don't vomit while I guess the next angle um, it's all over the place and it's not so much I think it's the, 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 the photographic equivalent of just throwing everything at the wall to see what sticks, but really not much of it sticks. Um, the other thing that this movie evidences uh, is that Hollywood production simply cannot echo this, is that Hong Kong stunt performers are so willful in disregard of their own physical faculties <laughs> that it beggars belief. And I can't imagine that they've unionised yet, but this is still very much at the peak of that. Hey, jump out of the way of this uncontrolled car and hope for the best period in uh, Hong Kong action cinema. There's a bit at the end of this film where I was just like... You know the scene where they're in the car and they drive the car out of the window aiming for the top of the shipping container? Um, Yes. And whether or not it was intended, the car does not land properly on the shipping container and it's surrounded by these... It's surrounded by stunt performers and there is so clearly no control of how that car is performing, where it's going, what speed it's doing, what the best these guys could have hoped for was in terms of which way are we going to get out of the way, because it is, cl- it is clearly just a random act of physics. Um, and the fact that nobody got mashed by that car in that scene is baffling, absolutely baffling. And you know that those guys are not getting paid enough. I don't care what the budget of this film is, man. Those those Hong Kong uh, those Hong Kong stunt actors do, are not getting paid enough. Um, this is just... Oh, my God. The production value of this film is 
among the better ones. However, it just feels like a really wasted opportunity because I got the real sense that this was more comfortable being a Hong Kong set Hong Kong action movie, but it just doesn't work off the back of that script. The, the script is absolutely bizarre. What are we talking about? Exploding jeans rivets? What? And it's about half an hour into the film where I thought there was something really wrong with the grading of the film or something, where I'm like, why do all, why do all the explosions look green in this movie? What is this? Is, is there just a huge amount of sulphur in the atmosphere of, of, uh, of over Hong Kong? But um, it gets explained about half an hour in, and you're like, all right, okay. Um, but it's not necessary to the plot whatsoever. Yeah, and like, neither is that entire first section when like you show them blowing up and the dolls filled with yeah. these things blowing up under the water. Yeah. I didn't understand what was going on there at all. No, I didn't either. I actually stopped at five minutes in and I went back because I was adamant that I'd missed something or I'd missed a key piece of dialogue and it's just, no, no, just don't expect an explanation for that anytime soon, anytime in the first half of the movie. Um, I think it's startling that, that uh, Rob Schneider isn't offensive in this. Um, it's really, wow, mind-blowing to think about. I can't help but feel this has just ever so slightly just missed the mark and that it's just gone off the edge of what could have been actually a halfway decent movie if it had had just a, a better script underneath it. Because Van yeah. Damme's having a whale of a time, and I actually thought he was pretty engaging in this. Um, but the rest of the film just doesn't hang together whatsoever. Um, well, I don't know, it, it's, um, it's weird. I, I get what you're saying about Van Damme kind of doing this almost like comedically, but he's the only one. Yeah. Um, yeah, it, also, it, it was just double team that Sammo Hung was on, Craig. He wasn't credited on um, knockoff. So oh, was he not? Okay. Maybe had he been, he might have got the cinematographer to yeah. actually frame the shot so people could see the martial arts. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. Like, it's so, <laughs> the Rob Schneider thing's the thing that's getting me about this. Um, but it's, the script is so poor. Yeah. Um, they've got, like, there's that bit the, near the end. It's one of the bits I was referring to, and I said that like, it needs to be a bit rough. Schneider, really. Yeah. Um, the woman who turns up, who's also in the CIA. Yeah. Um, and apparently, if you put CIA badges under ultraviolet light, it says valid. That's how you know they're a real CIA agent. Mm-hmm. But okay. Uh, it, she's like they're tied. She's tied up next to Rob Schneider. Um, and he makes some comment and she says, oh, get away from me. Like That only works if you'd had him being really irritating for the last couple yeah. of minutes. Yeah. And it just, you can't just drop that in there without it setting up at all. It's, no. The whole thing is such a mess. This um, thing, do you know what actually it's just occurred to me, and I can't believe it didn't occur to me while I was watching it, is that this ought to have been a Jackie Chan movie. This is like a script because we're talking about he's the only way behave, he's the, Van Damme's the only one behaving in that sort of slightly slapstick way. And if you actually think about the physicality of the role and some of the stuff later on with him kicking his way in between sort of um, shipping containers as they're sliding about the boat, that's yeah. got all the hallmarks of a Jackie Chan, like a rejected Jackie Chan script. You can imagine Jackie Chan in his role. Yeah. I mean, because you can see that clearly Van Damme can do that stuff because mm-hmm. he's like the bit he's, he's um, scrabbling along the floor to get away from the shipping container. Yeah. There's a scene in the garage when he's um, crawling around the pillar. Yeah. Um, like he's clinging on like a wee spider monkey on top of this pillar before he jumps down and takes out the gang that are chasing him. Yeah. It's like, and that's pretty impressive. Yeah. Um, but you don't really get to see most of what he's doing for the rest of the time because it's constant chopping, weird blurriness and slow-mo, um, horrible camera angles. It's it's just a mess of a film. 
Yeah. I appreciate that they were trying to do something with the cinematography, but you know, sometimes less is more. <laughs> it's just bizarre. Just the choices in this are bizarre. I was really looking forward to this because it had been recommended to me by people some time ago, uh, back round about when it came out, to be honest with you, um, when I was working in one of my first jobs, and I've never caught, sort of gotten around to watching it. So... I think probably of the movies that we've spoken about tonight, I think there's no doubt that we'd probably put this at the bottom of the pile. It's, oh, yeah, comfortably. It's, yeah, it's, it's more consistent in behaving like a movie than <laughs> Double Team is, but then Double Team just feels like it's trying to be something different entirely, and it kind of makes a better fist of that, the yeah, I mean, specific thing it's doing. Knockoff's script is still terrible. It doesn't make a lick of sense again. No. But um, you can sort of joint up in your mind a bit more yeah whereas double team is basically a fever dream yeah and it's all the better for it yeah uh, yeah knockoff's just conventionally bad but i didn't hate it i was just bored by it yeah whereas double team doesn't let you get bored yeah it's like this is terrible why is this terrible thing happening why is he doing this why is this happening who is he what is and like i you constantly question it but it makes it really really engaging yeah not good but engaging <laughs> yeah absolutely um, the thing about the thing about uh, double team is that it kind of comes across as though maybe David Lynch had tried to make an action movie. <laughs> <laughs> maybe maybe that's a good way of describing it. I don't know. It's probably not. I thought I'd like to see David Lynch make an action movie. Actually, there's a, there's an idea. Um, but there we the go. The basketball players are not what they seem. No. <laughs> You're on fire tonight, mate. Um, <laughs> so where here's the question for our listeners. Oh, this is what I wanted to talk about. Okay, very topical at the moment with everything that's going on right now with the good old COVID-19. I have spotted that Jean-Claude Van Damme may very well be an effective transmission vector for this virus because not once during any of these movies did I see him wash his feet. And he was putting his feet in a lot of people's faces. That's all I'm saying. That's all I'm saying. Where do we go into that fell flat? Where did uh, <laughs> where where are we going? <laughs> you, you, you bastard! Where, where are we going? Where are we going next on the Jean Claude Van Damme train, man? Is there is there an end to this or? Um, you have ruled yourself out of it, but Scott wants to do Time Cop, which mm-hmm. um. Which we might do. Um, the only Van Damme film that I've seen at the cinema. I don't refuse to do Time Cop. I refuse to do the compare and contrast that was suggested. Okay. Um, as for JCVD himself, I don't know, Craig. Um, let's leave it as a mystery. Mm. Just see when and where Jean-Claude Van Damme pops up again. Back into um, our lives, right when we need him, hopefully. I'm hoping it's Cyborg. <laughs> <laughs> I've never seen Cyborg. Cyborg's not good, Craig. I know it's um, not good. We should definitely do Cyborg and Universal Soldier. <laughs> yes. Yes, there's a thought. How do you feel about that, listeners? In the meantime, we didn't have any feedback from anyone uh, to, to recount this episode that we drew. No. No. Well, that makes that part easy then. If you would like to get in touch with us, of course, at Fuds on Film on Twitter, um, Fuds on Film on Facebook as well, I believe. Um, and yeah, just 
finders were pretty easy to get a hold of. Um, in the meantime, then, fare thee well. Obviously, these are difficult times. We are always here for you. Um, and, yes, I hope you're all keeping safe out there. Um, so we will be back soon enough. But in the meantime, I was Craig and Drew was Drew. Fare thee well. Good night. Thank you.